This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato, coming you today from the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. And later in the hour, we're going to talk with famed SETI astronomer Jill Tarter about a life spent searching for a signal from the cosmos. But first, when you when you think of building muscle, right? You think about lifting weights, doing squats, strengthening your core. But what I'm guessing you don't think about working out is your tongue. Yes, your tongue. Just like other muscles in the body, it too weakens with age and can be impaired by Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or strokes, and that can cause choking problems in older adults. But there may be ways to strengthen this all-important bundle of muscle without doing reps or sets, and my next guest is a tongue expert. She joins us at KMUW here in Wichita. Heidi Bell, Assistant Professor in the Department of Human Performance Studies at Wichita State University. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be I, here. I, I have never interviewed a tongue expert before. Well, I never thought I'd be one. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> what did, how did you get into this business? Well, my undergrad and master's were both in exercise science. I was a two-sport athlete and enjoyed being physically active. Um, and when I came across during my doctorate, um, looking at the tongue and realized there were eight muscles that atrophied just like the skeletal system like you had mentioned, and quickly recognized that um, dysphagia and sleep apnea, uh, within that particular science, they do not address it on the front end to try to prevent it mm. most of the time. Instead, they try to approach it from the back end after someone already is presented with it. And recognizing within the skeletal system, we can try to attenuate that loss and atrophy. Why can't we do that in the tongue? Yeah. Can, can, you mean, can, you mentioned the, that there were eight, a bundle of eight muscles? Yes. So we think of one muscle, but it's eight muscles. Correct. There's eight muscles, um, very new, unique structure. So four of those muscles um, actually have an origin on a bony structure, but their insertion is just into the tongue structure itself, connecting to um, connective tissue. Mm -hmm. And then the other four muscles of the tongue, which are known as intrinsic muscles, they do not have any bonus, bony structure which they attach to. Instead, both the origin and insertion are within the mm. tongue connecting to that connective tissue. In skeletal muscles, we always see that the origin and insertion, so if you're thinking about your bicep or your right. quadricep, both the origin and insertion attach to a bone. I want to ask our listeners if they've had any you know, tongue problems, choking problems, whatever, and ask them to call in our number 844-724-8255, 844 uh, uh, Um Aside from doing tricks like rolling or folding your tongue or teasing some persistent bit of food stuck in your teeth. What, what is, you know, we, and speech, right? What, right? what is the role of the tongue in your mouth? A really important role that most people don't even think about is to not only help chew your food, but to actually swallow your food. It is an assistive aid in propelling it back. And so if you start to lose tongue strength, um, at first you might notice grandma at the Thanksgiving table start to cough as she's chewing and swallowing. It's probably because she's not forcing that food down mm. in a forceful manner that she used to with her tongue. Um, and from there, if it continues to get worse and worse, we even have to start to modify their foods to assist with that swallowing. Um, another thing that a lot of people don't think about is that the tongue assists with respiration as well. So it helps maintain an open upper airway when we need to breathe. And it also assists in keeping the upper airway closed while we're still chewing that food before we actually begin to swallow. Is that why people get they, 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 they talk too much when they're trying to eat and they start choking on their food? That can happen too. Yeah. Um, but 
the referencing I was talking about is actually when they're starting to lose some strength right. in that tongue to actually help propel that food um, towards the esophagus. I mean, we talk about, you know, if you're losing muscle tone on your body, you mm-hmm. lift weights or anything. What, can you do anything for the tongue? So when I started to look at this line of research, um, they do have, there's several different um, very, in my opinion, elementary activities you can do, such as encouraging the individual to um, forcefully swallow hmm. or push your tongue against your cheek or push your tongue against a tongue depressor stick. Um, there's also the IOP system, and then there's the swallow-mo system, which have the tongue do movements against a pressure bulb um, to help promote tongue strength and tongue endurance. Um, but recognizing that the tongue does have to contract um, to help assist with respiration, and knowing that when we exercise, your respiration increases, I started to wonder, well, could we do something on the front end when an individual is already being physically active doing resistance training or running on the treadmill? Could they possibly be benefiting their tongue health and tongue function as well? And some of my research has actually been able to show that people who um, do exercise maintain healthier tongue muscle performance across age. You mean they exercise the regular parts of their body and the tongue muscle is also benefited. Exactly. Um, We still don't know why. Um, Speculation is that it's due to that respiratory pattern, but that's still on the line to be answered. Let's let's go to the phones. And Ellen, he was in, uh, is it Crawfordville, Florida, Ellen? Yes. Hi, go ahead. Just south of Tallahassee. I was wondering if um, I have some problems with, like, swallowing and uh, choking, eating, if that could be related to fibromyalgia, which I was diagnosed with a few years back. Well, I think that there's a neurological aspect there that could impact that. Um, I don't specialize in the mm-hmm. fibromyalgia area, but knowing that tongue muscle performance, it's not only about tongue strength or tongue endurance. There are neurological aspects that also impact the tongue's ability to function the way it should. Um, so if you notice that that swallowing issue became a problem at the same time that fibromyalgia, there may be a connection there, but that would definitely be something for the yeah. um, medical um, specialist that you are working with. Now, I understand that you have invented a special mouthpiece. Yes, we are working on a mouthpiece. Um, I'm working on that with uh, doctors Jeremy Patterson and Ryan Amick. And so... <clears throat> Part of it is to kind of answer that question um, along with the exercising. Is that really a breathing mechanism that impacts that tongue muscle performance when an individual is exercising? And besides doing EMG where you actually stick needles in the tongue, which most people aren't going to be volunteering for, (laughs) um, we looked at other ways in order to assess not only muscle fiber um, activation, but tongue muscle movement where it's placed in the tongue. And so we've been working on a mouthpiece that um, will actually be affixed to the upper palate so that your tongue can still move freely. And um, we can start to grab some of those measures that will help us answer some more questions. And the nice thing is that mouthpiece will not only answer my research questions, but I think will benefit quite a few different um, medical and clinical aspects as well as industry. Mm -hmm. Could, Could singing help you? Strengthen your tongue. That's actually one of the studies that we're in the process of collecting data on. Um, yeah. and you suspect, though, it might, it might somehow. Yes. Um, the preliminary data that we have shows that in younger adults did not make 
um, a significant difference, but we did see that there were differences in the older adults compared to those that did and did not sing. Um, but again, we're collecting additional data to really capture a bigger picture. You know, it, it, the tongue, the more we talk about it and, and you think about it, because you never think about your tongue, right? Yeah, most people don't unless you bite it. Why do we bite our tongue? Is it, is it because we have lost track? Because I'm thinking what my point was, I was trying to make was we move our tongue around without thinking at all about where it should be. Yeah. And, and how did, what gets screwed up that we bite it sometimes? I think it's just like anything else. I mean, you yeah. can be walking. We walk every day, and all of a sudden you trip over the sidewalk. I, I, you know, I think it's just a, mus a neuromuscular response that didn't trigger like we're mm. used to. Mm. How, how strong, uh, um, you say it's a bundle of muscles. Correct. Is it compared to other muscles in our body? Well, I know that over the past four years, there's been a huge topic on trying to debunk um, the statement that the tongue is the strongest muscle in the body. Mm. And... Based off of the way that that statement is presented and the way society probably looks and perceives that particular statement, I would have to debunk it as well. Because I think most people look at when they hear the strongest muscle, they think of that brute strength. And when we talk about strength, there's actually several different ways to measure strength. You have maximum strength, which is kind of that brute strength. There's also dynamic strength where how many times can you repeat that movement over and over um, we also have elastic or power strength. So how quickly can you go through that forceful movement? And then some mm. people would even look at muscle endurance being a submaximal type of muscle strength over a long duration of time. And so when you look at how was that statement pertaining to that individual statement when they made that, what type of strength were they looking at? And then the other piece of that is we have to also recognize that within the body there are three different types of muscle you have cardiac muscle, which we only see in the heart. And then you have smooth muscles, which are more of your um, mm -hmm. cell membrane area. And then we have skeletal muscles. And so when we compare other skeletal muscles like your biceps and your quads, yeah. again, like I earlier talked about, the origin and insertion, they have a, a bony structure. So they have nice leverage. But your tongue doesn't have. But your tongue only has some bony leverage on four of them at the origin, but not in the insertion. So it's really hard to really even compare that statement across muscles or even across yeah. how are you measuring that strength. So it'd be interesting to see the person that actually created that statement. <laughs> what was their pretense behind it? So I have to ask you because I, I've, I've always wondered about this. I never knew anybody who might know the answer to this question. Where does the phrase tongue in cheek come from? Do you, you know, you sit around having a beer, you know, what, what is, what does the tongue hat and cheek have to do with what is, you, you say it like flippant or something like that. You're saying, I'm saying a tongue in cheek. Does that mean, I don't know. What does that mean? I know it's probably someone's behavioral habit that <laughs> stimulate. I have no clue that. Yeah. I've heard the statement, but don't know where it came from. And, and is it true about, about tongues? You know, people, certain people, is it genetics that you can roll your tongue or flip it over? Is that true it runs in families or there is a piece to the genetic line but um even within an immediate family there are unique differences within each person yeah. and so individuals that are able to roll or twist their tongue it comes down to the elasticity within the connective tissue 
And so you think about someone even on their limb muscles. Right. Some people are more flexible than others. Mm-hmm. Heidi Bell, assistant professor in the Department of Human Performance Studies at Wichita State University. Thank you for talking about the tongue. We never get a chance to do that. Absolutely. Thank you for having You're me. You're welcome. Coming up, like being a female engineer, astronomer, and alien hunter in the 1960s. We're going to talk with SETI's own Jill Tarter about her new biography. Uh, when we come back, stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Back when Jill Tarter was a kid, she used to gaze up at the stars above her Florida home and wonder if those stars were somebody else's sons, perhaps a little girl just like her on some faraway planet. Of course, most people have a childhood story like this, a time when they fantasized about aliens, but Jill Tarter was different. She would grow up to be a pioneer in the field of astronomy, a trailblazer, a role model for women in science. She was the only female engineering student in her class of 300 before she went on to become a founding member of a brand new institute called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And to many, she's known as the real-life person who inspired the character of Ellie Arroway from Carl Sagan's book Contact, which then became a feature film starring Jodie Foster. And since her retirement in 2012, Jill Tarter has taken on perhaps her most challenging role as SETI cheerleader, out to convince the world that the search is still on and still important. Dr. Jill Tarter is an astronomer, former director of SETI research, and she currently holds the Bernard M. Oliver Chair for SETI. Welcome back to Science Friday, Jill. Hi, Ira. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Um, We've had you on previously to discuss the the big questions about intelligent life in the universe, but this new biography, uh, Making Contact, it really brings to light all the challenges that the SETI project has faced over the years. It's really been a roller coaster, hasn't it? It has been. Uh, But now with exoplanets and uh, extremophiles, it just seems so much more relevant and realistic to be asking this question. Mm-hmm. What, what were those early days of SETI like? Did, did you know it was going to be difficult to convince people of the value of you know searching for intelligent life? Well, when you get a, a Golden Fleece Award early in your career, uh, you probably get a clue that things aren't going to be uh, a smooth road ahead. Yeah. Um, and, and so what, was there then a, a golden age of SETI? Oh, I think we're probably in it now. And uh, just because SETI benefits, that is, using radio telescopes and optical telescopes and massive amounts of computing to try and find signals and noise, that benefits so much from the exponential growth in the computing Mm -hmm. industry that it's hard to compare today with even yesterday. It's just getting better. And so is there, is there one key tool you have today that you, di- that you didn't have back in those early days? Well, yes, certainly the computing uh, mm-hmm. was just not up to the task when we tried to make it work at first. And it may not yet be up to the task. We may still have to uh, go through additional generations of advances in computing before we can do the job that we're trying to do. But... You know, Columbus didn't wait for a 747 to get across the ocean, so we're not waiting. We're using the tools we have and trying to be as clever and as smart uh, with them as we possibly can be. So, so tell us why, uh, why computing is so important to your project. Well, we're um, 
we're sifting through noise. So what we would like to do, ideally, in SETI is look at all the sky, all the time, at all frequencies for all kinds of signals. And what we can do in reality is only a fraction of that. And we try and be clever about the fraction that we actually uh, accomplish. So the universe is emitting radiation across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, not just the visible part of the spectrum that your eyes see or the radio part of the spectrum that uh, television and radars uh, make use of, but in all frequencies. And embedded in there, there may be indications of engineering, some deliberate signals, and we don't know exactly what their characteristics might be. And so we have to use computers to search through all of that noise, looking for artifacts. Indeed, when we use a radio telescope, uh, there is a part of the spectrum that is particularly quiet naturally, where nature isn't emitting a great deal of signal. And that's the region of the spectrum that we'd like to search systematically. But if we're looking for engineered signals, which happen to be compressed in frequency, um, that region of the spectrum is 9 billion channels wide. Wow. And so it takes a computer and not a headset to, uh, to search through them. Hmm. I mentioned that uh, you stood out as the only female engineer in your class at Cornell in the 1960s. Were, were you aware of the uniqueness of your position while that was going on? <laughs> I was very aware, <laughs> and uh, whenever I could, I tried to use it. Mostly, it was a handicap, like being locked into the female dorms at night and doing all of the homework assignments myself while my male colleagues were uh, were mm. sharing out the problems and, and teaming uh, on their side of the campus. But I got a really good education as a result, and um, I've been privileged to be able to find the problems that I think are very, very interesting to solve. In case you just joined us, I'm talking with uh, Jill Tarter, uh, famed for the Center for, uh, for SETI Research. Uh, 844-724-8255 is our number. Her new book is uh, Making Contact. And, of course, the public really got to know you when Carl Sagan used you as inspiration for the character of Ellie Arroway in his book, Contact, which then, of course, became a movie. Uh, did he tell you he was going to do that beforehand? Well, Carl was a colleague, and he wrote a book about a woman who does what I do. Um, he and Andrean invited me to a cocktail party at their house once in, in Ithaca, and uh, and they said, well, Carl's writing this science fiction novel. And we said, oh, yeah, I know. We all read about the advance he got in the New York Times last Sunday, and we're all jealous as hell. And they, they kind of laughed, and they said, well, you know, you might think that you recognize someone in the book, but we think you'll like her. <laughs> and I said, oh, come on, come on. All right, here's the deal. Just make sure she 
doesn't eat ice cream cones for lunch. And then no one will think it's me because that was sort of my signature characteristic or failing as we had we walked to the Baskins and Robbins and had ice cream cones every every noon. Uh, so but did he yeah. cooperate on that? Yeah, El, I don't remember Ellie ever eating an ice cream cone. <laughs> well, drinking a beer, yeah, but yeah. not eating an ice cream cone. Well, let me play a little. We have a little clip of the movie, of, uh, the movie version played by uh, Jodie Foster, and I want to ask you about that after we listen to it. You want to hear something really nutty? I heard of a couple guys that want to build something called an airplane. You know, you get people to go in it and they fly around like birds. It's ridiculous, right? Or what about, what about uh, breaking the sound barrier or uh, rockets to the moon or atomic energy or a mission to Mars? Science fiction, right? Look, all I'm asking is, is for you to just have the tiniest bit of vision, you know, to, to step back for one minute and look at the big picture, to take a chance on something that just might end up being the most profoundly impactful moment for humanity, for, for the history of history. Jill, is that you? Is that? Uh, I've certainly, I've certainly, yeah, I've certainly had to do that. Um, I don't think I've ever been quite as dramatic as that scene, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the 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 lines that precede the clip that you just played mm-hmm. were, "We know what to do. Now all we need is the money," and certainly that's a line I've used quite frequently. And, and you're still using it. Oh, of course. Yeah, is that basically what your role as a SETI cheerleader is now to, to go out and yeah, make money? Yeah, uh, right. Um, the roller coaster that we mentioned earlier is uh, is not a really great way to continue a scientific exploration that may have to go on for for generations. Um, and so, what's really needed for SETI is a funding vehicle that will allow this research to have a viable future and a dependable future so that when we go and try and uh, recruit the best and the brightest of our young scientists mm-hmm. and engineers, you know, it's, it's a hard sell to say, look, this is a really important question. Uh, it's one you might not find a definitive answer to during your career, but you will find a great deal of reward and satisfaction in figuring out ways to do the job better than um, Mm -hmm. I've been able to do it. That's a hard sell. But then if you add to it and, oh, by the way, mm, funding's a bit of a problem and I might not make your paycheck at the end of the month. Now, that's a real downer. And so we need someone or a group of some ones with vision who decide that, yes, this old question is important. Yes, this old question may take a long time to answer. We may not yet have the technology that is required to succeed, but we should be working on it, and we should, in fact, uh, find a way to fund it into the future. Mm. Talking with uh, Jill Tarter, author of uh, Making Contact. Let's go to the phones. Uh, Let's see if, uh, oh, yeah, lots of people want to talk to you. Let's go to Tucson, to John in uh, Tucson, Arizona. Hi, John. Uh, Hello, Ira, and hi, Jill. 
Hello. Uh, I'm so glad to be talking to you, Jill. You came to the University of Arizona campus to give a talk, and I got confused and couldn't find the room because apparently there were three different departments with a similarly named room. So we wandered all over <laughs> campus. That was frustrating. And I thought, I think that Jill Tarter knows about frustration much better than I do. <laughs> Have you got a question for her? Yes, I do. And Jill, in the next 10, 100, or 1,000 years, what do you think the chances are that we will detect extraterrestrial intelligence? And that's my question. Thanks for calling. Well, I, I can't do any uh, calculation that will give you a probability that means anything. There is so much that is unknown in this field. But I do believe that um, just as uh, Craig Venter and David Cohen suggested that whereas the 20th century had been the century of physics with all of these fantastic breakthroughs and achievements, the 21st century was going to be the century of biology. And, of course, they were talking about genomics. I think, actually, the 21st century is going to be the century of biology on Earth and beyond. I think there is a real opportunity in this coming century, um, what's left of it, to discover life beyond Earth, either by finding evidence of it on bodies within our own solar system or by SETI succeeding or actually by taking it, by bringing life off the planet. Mm -hmm. I'm Ira Flater. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International, talking with uh, Jill Tarter, uh, author of her, her new biography, Making Contact. You know, uh, being at Cornell, home of a Frank Drake, the Frank the Drake equation, and the chances of finding life, intelligent life out there in the cosmos. Um, if, if scientists really believe, and, and so many of them believe that there has to be life and intelligent life in the cosmos, it just makes sense to search for it, doesn't it? I mean, if you Actually, believe it's there, Ira, look for it. You got the wrong verb. Believe. That's not the question. We need to explore and find out what is. We've spent mm. millennia asking the priests and the philosophers what we should believe about this question. Now, scientists and engineers have some tools right. that will allow them to actually search and discover what is. So I really, in every opportunity, try to uh, substitute the verb to explore for the verb to believe. That's interesting. Uh, you, uh, you mentioned the funding problem. It's always an ongoing problem. Right now, SETI is funded privately, correct? It is. SETI is been funded since 1993 by private individuals with great vision. Mm -hmm. And so the most recent, the most recent of these being Yuri Milner, who has uh, pledged 100 million dollars for a 10-year search. Um, that money's gone to the uh, to Berkeley to the Center for SETI Research. There. Mm -hmm. do, do you do you think that if more scientists like yourself were were more visible scientists that you might, you know get more attention to the, the ongoing problem. All scientists have a funding. Well, SETI actually uh, 
is blessed by getting a great deal of attention, uh, especially when compared to the very low level of funding that uh, we enjoy. People are interested in what we're doing. Uh, there is almost no one who has no opinion about the question of, of life beyond Earth. And it's as opposed to um, uh, the Higgs boson, this yeah. is an easy story to tell. It is one that people can react to. People really do want to understand how they fit in and 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 to find some way to calibrate their place. You know, are we on the top of the rung? Are we at the bottom? How do we fit into this cosmos? And uh, so SETI is um, an easy story to tell. And I could barely stand any more attention. Thank you. I'm on the road <laughs> a great deal trying to uh, get people excited about this uh, well, project. I wish you great luck and uh, future future in your search. I'm not going to say belief, but in your search right. for intelligent right. life out there in the cosmos. Jill Totter, astronomer, former director of the Center for uh, SETI Research. She's the uh, Oliver Chair there at, at SETI and also author of Making Contact. Really interesting stuff. And Actually, Ira, Sarah Scholes is the author of the biography, and we oh. should give her credit. Okay. She's a, she's a young science I, writer, and I think she did a great job. I love her voice. I'm glad you corrected me on that. Sarah Scholes, author of Making Contact, and you are the subject. In the biography. That's true. Guilty as charged. <laughs> We're going to take a break, and after the break, a lab that breaks down aircraft to look for signs of aging. We'll be right back after the break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Not too long ago, as I settled down in my seat on a long flight to Europe, I observed how the flight attendant was preparing for the upcoming in-flight movie. He didn't go to a flat panel screen and key in the digital film. Nope. He pulled a VCR out of a pile, slipped it into the slot of the VCR player, and waited for the squiggly lines to disappear from that single small TV set we all had to share. It was then that it struck me, just how old is this plane? Sure, passenger aircraft in the U.S. have strict rules on the total number of flight hours the airframe can have, plus limits on takeoffs and landings, and planes do undergo careful inspections and maintenance. But how do they know exactly what might need inspecting or maintaining? Joining me now is Melinda Laubach-Hawk. She is director of the Aging Aircraft Lab at the Wichita State University's National Institute for Aviation Research, NIAR. That's here at, uh, in Wichita, Kansas, and she's here at KMUW, our studios. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me. Uh, what do you mean when, when you say an aging aircraft? Or how old are aircraft out there that we're flying on? Well, the word, the term aging aircraft is really a misnomer. A lot of people think that air, aging aircraft only relates to aircraft designed in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But really, we're, we start the aging process the minute aircraft rolls off the production line. We want to get ahead of the problems before they happen. Huh. Uh, so what are some of the main problems that, that you look for, that you want to get ahead of? Most of the aircraft uh, have cracking at some point in their life, uh, also corrosion issues. So it's best to have a plan from the beginning on how you're going to treat those before they come up in the fleet. Mm -hmm. Which is the plan. What's the plan? It, the plan really depends on the aircraft. Um, uh -huh. Engineers have gotten very good at predicting 
when cracks will occur, where they will occur, and they develop really good inspection plans to address those and keep our aircraft safe. But every now and then there's an issue that just pops up at a certain point in the service life that no one could predict because we're not perfect at, at doing engineering work. And so that's why the work we do at the Aging Aircraft Lab is very important. What do you study there? Basically, we take aircraft completely apart when they've reached a certain point in their life. When their life is almost over, we go find an aircraft from the fleet and we take it apart piece by piece. We do very, very detailed inspections, inspections that would be impossible if you were going to return this aircraft to service. And we're looking for very small cracks, corrosion, things that could become a problem as the aircraft continues to age through its service life. So you have to destroy the aircraft to really look at it. That's right. Unfortunately, to do a very precise job, which is what we're looking to do and find absolutely everything, we have to destroy the aircraft. So do you have to buy the aircraft? Do they get donated from the aircraft? It, it really it really depends on the research program. Um, most times the aircraft's donated to the university since mm-hmm. we're since we're an educational institution. The aircraft's donated. Um, occasionally we've been given funds by the FAA to do research, and part of that includes purchasing an airplane. So we've done both. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Um, what is is there a predictable pattern that an aging aircraft goes through that you can look for? Not really. No. If it, that makes it, that's what makes it harder. That, that's what makes it harder. If there was one, if there was one um, textbook solution to the problem, we wouldn't be doing the research we're doing. Mm-hmm. It really depends on how the aircraft's designed. Aircraft are designed for very different reasons. We don't look at just passenger jets. We look at military aircraft as well. So in our lab, we've looked at. Bombers, tankers, cargo aircraft, fighter aircraft. Uh, we do a lot of DOD support at our facility. Mm-hmm. What, is this, the, the, what does the term metal fatigue mean? Basically, metal fatigue, um, back when aircraft were first designed, we were worried about static strength, the one-time load applied to the aircraft, what's the maximum it can sustain. Then in the 50s, we started seeing incidents of airplanes cracking at much lower loads, and we weren't quite sure why that was happening, and it ended up being metal fatigue. And what metal fatigue is, is when you apply load over and over and over to the airframe, it's it becomes weaker as a function of time and small cracks begin to appear. And as long as you address those with an inspection program, you don't have a problem. But it's definitely something we have to keep a lookout for. In, in fact, the, the, probably the most famous case of that was the first case of uh, the, the, the Haviland Comet in 1954. That's correct. Either that one or the Aloha incident in 1988 as well um, really sparked the start of fatigue research on airframes. I know you, I know you probably don't remember this movie called No Highway in the Sky, but it was a Jimmy Stewart movie, and I'm going to read from the IMDb of it. It says, fatigue after a certain number of flight cycles as outlined in the 1948 novel and the 1951 film came true with the failure of that comet in 1954. So people were thinking about this way back, right? Right. People were thinking about it, but we didn't necessarily have the experience or the engineering technology to be able to address it at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Of course, things have gotten way better uh, in this generation. Are are planes today stronger than the older planes? Actually, I would say stronger is, again, kind of a misnomer, Uh, whether you're talking static strength, whether you're talking fatigue strength. What we've gotten better at is being able to analyze the designs. Before, the older aircraft might be a little bit stronger because if we didn't know, we just made the part a little bit thicker. You overbuilt. Right. The, just just, just build it thicker and a little bit heavier, and it's no big deal. Yeah, we don't know, so we just build it in extra tough. Right. But now that we've become more worried about fuel economy and some of the economic issues surrounding aircraft, we're trying to design them lighter and more efficient. When we do that, we're also approaching, you know, mm-hmm the edge of design yeah let's go to the phones uh, our number 844-724-8255 uh, 
Let's uh, go to Don in Prescott Valley, Arizona. Hi, Don. Hello. Hi there. Go what ahead. An interesting program. Thank no you. No Highway in the Sky is one of my favorite movies. I'm an <laughs> aging former aerospace engineer myself from the 1960s. I worked at Ryan Aeronautical, mainly in electronics, on Surveyor, Apollo, and Viking. And my comment is that I took my whole family, including my in-laws, to Hawaii. And as I was getting on the plane to hop from one island to another, I noticed a lot of cracks around the door. And I told the stewardess to please tell the pilot. And I don't know if she ever did. So I've always felt guilty that I didn't follow up some other way because that was just a few months before the top of the plane ripped off. Uh, I don't know if it was the same plane. My wow. question is, since I found a whole lot of mistakes and problems in various electronics over the years, I wondered if the same level of research is being done on the electrical systems, the ones that can cause fires, explosions, and so forth. Hmm. That's my so, question. See, you're a modern-day Jimmy Stewart, then, if you know the movie. <laughs> Actually, I did... Uh, write a memo saying I found a diode that was charging a big capacitor, and it was a signal diode, not a power diode. And uh, it failed in a thermal vacuum. And when my boss came to me and said, didn't you notice this? I handed him a copy of my memo. There you go. And he just grinned and <laughs> looked worried and walked away without saying a word. Melinda, what do you think of his? Th thanks for calling. Um, yes, in parallel, most of what we do is, is structural airframe research, but there's also engine, engine research. There's a, a great deal of uh, electronics research. Basically, anything that goes into an airframe is researched and tested uh, to the extreme level to maintain the safety standards. So you take a plane and you wiggle it and bend it and all kinds of stuff to see where it's going to fail? Yes, um, that is also done. We don't want to wait till an aircraft is 10 or 20 or 30 years into service. So we can go in and perform structural testing. And what we do is we mechanically apply the loads that the aircraft would see over its lifetime. We simulate takeoffs and landings and large gusts and anything that would cause cracks or damage to the airframe. And we can do an entire lifetime of an airframe in a couple of years instead right. of waiting for 20, 30 years down the road. Well, that's interesting. You talked about doing a lot of military aircraft. We have 50-year-old military, B-52s, planes like that that mm -hmm. are still flying. I just how, finished, how, do you, how do you keep them flying? This, this is an interesting story. I just finished a program on the KC-135. It was designed and built in the 50s and that's, 60s. That's a tanker. That's a tanker. That, that's basically your, your aerial gas station for about everything else we fly. And they originally designed that aircraft to last 10 years. They wanted to get through the Vietnam conflict, and then they were going to design a new tanker. Well, now here we are in 2017. They're looking to fly that aircraft to 2040, 2050, maybe even beyond. So how do you keep an aircraft flying when the average fleet age is going to reach 80 years? So the, the teardown process was very important to them because we were, when we do structural teardown, we're able to look places that no one's looked since the aircraft was originally built. So, such as? Such as into inside major structural features like bulkheads, inside the very um, details of the wing that where we usually see cracks. Um, we do the best inspections we can when the aircraft is in one piece, but if we're able, if we have the luxury of taking it completely right. apart, we can see much more than you can through just general inspection. And so how do you look for these little cracks? Um, we use visual inspection right. and enhanced non-destructive inspections. There's techniques out there called fluorescent penetrant, eddy what, current. What, 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 what we like to get into the weeds on this stuff, so give us some details of what you mean. Sure, sure. So... 
Fluorescent penetrant is basically you dip the part into this oily fluorescent substance, and the substance seeps down into any surface-breaking discontinuity like a crack or like corrosion. You wipe it off the surface, and you shine a black light on it, and any of the trap penetrant glows in the dark. And so it definitely leads you to a very specific part on the spot that you could easily miss if you're looking at thousands of square inches of aircraft metal. Um, We also use an eddy current machine, and it basically induces an electromagnetic field into the part. And you have trained technicians that look at a scope, and when they get a specific signal, that tells them there's a crack. We use ultrasound kind of like you do uh, in the medical field when you're looking at babies. You can do that with Mm -hmm. composite parts, looking at how the sound reflects back. Mm -hmm. And and, and – but you can't do this. I don't know, but I'm going to ask you. How do you do that with a, a, an aging old iconic plane like a B-52 or the KC-130 that you, you can't take that apart and destroy it, can you? Actually, we did. You did? We got uh, the, the four KC-135s we did. We've also done B-52 in our facility. We've gotten them out of AMARG, which is the uh, aircraft boneyard in Arizona where in they there. retire Love these it. aircraft. Yeah. Uh, once they're done with their useful life, they just kind of sit out there and they're they're parted out for spares. And if we can get an aircraft donated to us where we can gain some valuable information to keep the rest of the fe- fleet flying, that's a very good use of an airframe like that that has minimal used to the Air Force or to any other operator. You know, I, I know when we, when we have old cars and you try to rebuild an old car or take care of it, do you have any problem getting the parts you would need? To re- well, since we're not rebuilding them, right. we don't have that problem. Right. Basically, we take apart the airframe, but the the military does have that problem, and that's why they keep the boneyard. They right. go out and they find an old tanker, take it apart, get the pieces they need to repair the tankers that they're using now. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Talking with uh, Melinda Labuck-Hawk, who is director of the Aging Aircraft Lab at the National Institute for Aviation Research at the Wichita State University here in Wichita. How did you get involved in this? It sounds fascinating. Well, where's, what's your experience? That you, you, you sound like you have a lucky, once-in-a-lifetime kind of job here. I do, actually. Um, I, I grew up in western Kansas. I was a small uh, farm-town girl, and I always had this great interest in airplanes, I came to Wichita State on a Wallace Scholarship, which is a, a big scholarship in the Wichita area. Mm-hmm. I came here, started working for a local aircraft company, um, was part of a layoff cycle, um, fa- found a job at the Institute working as a graduate student, and just had a lot of interest in uh, how aircraft are built, how aircraft are maintained, um, the sustainment side of it more than the design side, and um, just, just kind of fell into this position. That's I've great. been there 15 years now. Wow. Just getting started. Just getting started. <laughs> Let's go to James in Annandale, Virginia. Hi, James. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. I appreciate it. My question, uh, really quick, is when you're dealing with an aircraft like the Boeing 787, you're dealing with composite structures, not just metal structures. How are you going to change the research program to take that, that uh, change into account? Interesting. We've already we've already begun to do that. Wichita State does significant amount of research in the in the area of composites, both from manufacturing and testing. We're just getting into that in the aging aircraft world because composites haven't been used widely uh, on older airframes. But it's it's just a, a matter of using a different inspection technique. As I mentioned before, you know when we're dealing with composites, ultrasound is a great option instead of eddy current that we typically use on metallic structure. But the idea of taking it apart and looking at the details and maybe even testing the strength after the fact, those are all things that 
are yeah. applicable to composites as well. Give me an idea how long it takes to take a whole airplane apart. It depends on the size of the aircraft. We've done really small uh, Cessna-sized aircraft in the past. That's about a year-long project. The larger airplanes take about three years in general. Do you ever take a plane apart and say, why did they design it this way? This is kind of crazy. It, it's not always why did they design it this way, but a, a lot more of what I've seen is why did they repair it this way. Oh. Um, when you're dealing with military aircraft, you have to think they may be over in the desert in a, in wartime. They've got to get this aircraft patched back together so it can get back to the United States. So that's definitely been the more interesting part for me is 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 how did someone come up with this design and how did they do this out in the middle of out in the middle of nowhere, really. Is, is there a tool that's not invented yet that you would love to have if you could spend any amount of money inventing it? Of course. Anybody would, would love like? anybody would love a magic box that you could just plug into an airplane and press a button and it tell you where all the defects are. You know, kinda like kinda like uh, your car is now. You you get is a code. It, but is it is it possible? Is it possible for a plane to diagnose its own problems if you design it if you could you design it that way? Uh, absolutely. We're, we've actually done some research on what's called structural health monitoring, which means embedding sensors into certain parts of the airframe as you build it. Right. And then monitoring certain properties of the airframe as you go on. And when you start to see a change in property, that drives your maintenance to that location. So we're already kind of heading there. Good, but, but, you know, we, we know there are red lights that light up on, you know, in the airplane when something is going wrong. Could you do the sensors do that and tell you way in advance that some parts are beginning to fail? I think we'll get there. We're just not there yet. Yeah, some some sort of system that is, in, uh, you know, you, you see stuff on Star Trek or whatever that they've done this already. But it, but the way we're moving so fast with technology, we think we should be able to do that. Right, and they are able to do that. I mean, they do it with engines. Just think about the engine in your car. It yeah. gives you a light and says something's yeah. wrong with it. That's applicable to airframes, too. We just haven't been able to get there with the structural part, part of an airframe yet. Well, well. Uh, we're, we're glad you came and told us about how, what you're doing, what your research is like out there. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. You're welcome. Linda Laubach-Hawk, she is the director of the Aging Aircraft Lab at uh, Wichita State University's National Institute for Aviation Research right here in Wichita. B.J. Liedemann composed our theme music. Our thanks to our production partners at the studios of the City University of New York, at the John Cyphers, Debbie Fraser, Sarah Jane Crespo, Fletcher Powell, Everyone here at uh, KMUW uh, in Wichita, Kansas, thank you for all the, the work you've uh, helped us out today and made our program possible. And we loved being in Wichita. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Plato in Wichita, Kansas.